Amen. You may be seated. So I woke up this morning feeling spiritually dry, perhaps, is the, is the best way to put it. I just woke up this morning not in, not in my normal not in my normal spirit for a Lord's Day, for a, for a Sunday when I knew that we would be, we would be gathering together. And so as I, as I went about my morning preparations, and I uh, typically I, I turn on some music and I, and I worship by myself as I, as I prepare to come here to the church house. And I caught myself during this time of worship over and over again, pledging myself to God, making promises to God. I, I'd fallen into this spot where apparently in my, in my heart, I felt like what I was lacking and this dryness and this emptiness that I felt this morning, that it was, I needed to do something to earn back God's favor. I needed to do something to get him to fill me with his spirit. I needed a promise. I needed a pledge. I needed to, I needed to swear an oath. I needed to something. And then as I was coming to the conclusion that there was no end in sight for this, that God wasn't pleased with my pledges. He wasn't pleased with my promises. He wasn't He wasn't responding. He reminded me I was looking in the wrong place. And he, and he pointed my eyes to Christ, and he reminded me that it is only in him. But then he went a step further, and he reminded me that in him, in Jesus Christ, God is completely for me. Completely for me. It, it's not as if, we, we come to Jesus Christ, and then that's the first domino to fall. And then the others have got to come into place. The others have got to fall. The other things have got to happen. And Jesus is the initiator of this thing. But then we come to other places to find the rest of what we need. What, what God reminded me is that it is all found in him. Justification, it's in him. Sanctification, it's in him. Glorification, it's in him. Assurance, it's in him. Everything that we need, adoption, it's in him. Righteousness, it's in him. Everything that we could possibly need in this lifetime and the next is found in Jesus Christ. And that once we are found in Jesus Christ, we are lacking nothing. That the infinitely holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving God is completely and totally for you if you are found in Christ. He doesn't hold a little bit back. He doesn't dangle some up here for you to try and jump and earn. Completely and totally in that moment when you are found in Jesus Christ, he is for you. And all that God is, God is for you. And so then th that phrase just kept going through my head. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. And then whatever sense of spiritual emptiness, of dryness, the melancholy that was over me, how could it remain in the sight of that? Knowing that God is for you, the God of the universe is for you, completely and totally for you, and that because it wasn't something that you earned, it's also not something that you can lose, because there's nothing left to be done. God, forgive me. Not, not forgive me for feeling down. 
Now forgive me for, feel, for waking up feeling, feeling dry, but for looking anywhere other than Jesus Christ for the assurance that I wanted in that moment, for the promises that I needed in that moment. And so with that, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus again this morning. And so for the last 18 weeks, as we've studied Mark's gospel, we have found that Mark is a, is a rapid storyteller. He moves at a fast pace immediately, is the word. Just boom, boom, boom. Just from picture to picture to picture of Jesus Christ, constantly moving. Never allowing your eyes to really focus too long in one space. Never, never really allowing your feet to get settled at any one moment. He just moves at such a rapid pace. And then when we come to this morning's text, it's almost like he just pumps the brakes for a minute. Before we move off into the calling of the twelve and a string of parable teachings from the Lord Jesus Christ, it's almost like he just kind of hits the brakes and allows us just to take a snapshot for just a moment, just to catch our breath, to allow our eyes to refocus. Because up to this point, we've been moving so fast. Now, I haven't been moving fast, but Mark has been moving fast. He has covered so much ground in just two chapters so that we, we get here this morning and, and now he gives us almost a summary statement of what it is that Jesus Christ has been doing and what it is that he's been teaching us throughout his gospel thus far. And so go ahead and stand to your feet as we move now to the seventh verse in the third chapter of Mark's gospel. We're going to read verse 7 down through verse 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? And would you show me the one in whom all your promises rest? The only name under heaven by which men may be saved. The author and perfecter of our faith. The only place in which salvation may be found. Your son Jesus Christ. In the name of our glorious Savior that we pray. Amen. So for the last five weeks we have found Jesus in conflict with the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders in that region, and for the last three, we've seen them really zeroing in on matters of the Sabbath. And then last week, as Jesus once again left the men speechless, unable to answer his questions, we found them plotting, along with the Herodians, the, the politically-minded folks there, we found them plotting together because there was no answer for the rebuttal that Jesus gave. There was no answer for the power in his works. There was no answer for the reality of his teaching. And so we ended last week with the Pharisees. They went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. That's Jesus Christ. How they may destroy him. It, it, should become, it should come as no surprise to us then 
when we find Jesus withdrawing this week. And in fact, in the parallel account in Matthew to what we read last week, in the parallel account, he says this, Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, aware of the plot, he withdrew from there. It wasn't that Jesus was afraid of the conflict, clearly. It wasn't that Jesus was even afraid to lay down his life. It's that the time had not yet come. Because before the very beginning of time, God had appointed that on a Passover, a little over a year after this point, Jesus would lay down his life to be raised again three days later. But that wasn't going to happen one second sooner than God had ordained. And so Jesus withdrew. And specifically, we learned this morning, verse 7, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, the lake, the Sea of Galilee. We find this often. Jesus, Jesus kind of pulling away. Not only was he not going to hang around Jerusalem and the religious center in the south where the Pharisees and the scribes and those that would seek his life would, that would find him and pursue him and pressure him, but he wouldn't, even, he wouldn't even remain in the city centers there at the synagogues. He would often withdraw to the Sea of Galilee, number one, because there was more space there. The crowds weren't as compacted. There, there was more space to roam. The, great, the crowds could really hear him and be around him there by the lake, by the Sea of Galilee. Number two, because it could, it could almost be seen as neutral territory. He wasn't on their turf any longer. So he was out here away from there in, in a more neutral site where people wouldn't be as intimidated to come to him and listen to him and to hear his words. But I think there's a third reason perhaps. And I think perhaps what Jesus was doing was he was using physical distance to make clear the incompatibility of his gospel, of his person, and this religion that these people had made. We talked about this a few weeks back when Jesus made clear to these guys, listen, I'm not a patch that's come, that you can just patch me into your old system. I'm new wine that can't be contained in these old wineskins. And so I think perhaps there was an element to Jesus showing, you, you know, you can show something with the look on your face. You can show something by turning your back on somebody. You can show something physically with the way that you, that you stand and present yourself before somebody. I think perhaps Jesus was doing some of that too, saying, I'm not confined to your synagogues. I don't have to come to your temple. I'm going out here to the lake, to the sea, where the people that want to hear me can come, and they're going to listen to what I have to say. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. Despite the religious persecution, despite the, the work of the Pharisees and the scribes to oppress him, Jesus was outrageously popular. His fame was at an all-time high, and people were coming from all around. And we're, we hear about some places here, some specific places that the people were coming from. And so you may remember back when we began our study of Mark, we divided the area of, of Israel, we divided the, the nation of Israel really into three kind of generic areas. You remember in the south was Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the more religious folks would have been found. Many of the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the rabbis and the teachers and the preachers and the, the, the people that would have been most opposed to Jesus. The religious center of Jerusalem or of Israel would have been there in Jerusalem and the area around Judea. And then just north of there we had Samaria. This was an area that was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was taken off into captivity by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C. And you remember that the Assyrians, their practice was that they would bring in other peoples, foreign people, to come in and work the land so that the few Jews that were there, they intermarried, despite God's commands not to do that. They intermarried, and so this was a mixed Jewish-Gentile group of people. This is why the religious Jews despised them so much. But this is the area there in the middle of Samaria. And then north is Galilee where to date we've seen Jesus hanging out, doing his work, preaching, teaching, healing. These were a, people, this were a, were a, a Jewish people that were much less religious than the people, in the people in the south. And so many of them, as we found, were more friendly 
more open to hearing the gospel that Jesus had to preach. And so what we see here is that there was this great crowd, and they had come. They had come from not just Judea, but actually Jerusalem itself. That there were people that were bathed in the religion of Judaism. Even the, even the man-made, even the, even the man-manufactured rules that went along with that, there were still some within that town that wanted to hear the truth that Jesus preached. And obviously there were people all around Galilee in that region that came to him. In addition to that, they came from Edomia. That's, that's, the, that's the Greek word for Edom. You know the kingdom of Edom? They came from Esau, Jacob's brother, who sold his birthright for a, pot of, or for a bowl of stew. And so the Edomites, they had, they had settled on the east side of the Jordan River and, and kind of down south of the Dead Sea. But eventually what happened was, other nations came, and they attacked them, and they drove them west, so that now they were over by the Mediterranean Sea, just south. In the, in the area that uh, we think of today as the Israelite desert, the Negev, just south of Israel, in that desert area, that's where these Edomians are. Some of them were coming as well, these old-school Edomites. They were coming. They were wanting to hear what Jesus had to preach. And then it says the area beyond the Jordan, to the east of the Jordan. These would have been Gentiles. Well, you would have had a mix of Jews and Gentiles from these other areas. These would have surely been Gentiles that were on the other side of the Jordan River and then Tyre and Sidon up on the Mediterranean Sea. These port towns. Again, these are Gentiles. These are people that weren't wrapped up in the old system of Judaism. These were people that were coming from all around. From all around. People were hearing about this gospel message that Jesus had to preach. But more than that, what we read here is when the crowd heard the things that he was doing, they came to him. Specifically, they were coming because of his healing. They found out that with just a word or with just a touch that Jesus could heal. As a matter of fact, that all he had to do was speak and the demons would flee. They had no ability to stand before him. And so it was because of that reason that they came to him. It wasn't necessarily they were hungry for the gospel. Some perhaps, some certainly. But for most of them, they wanted to come and see this miracle worker. They heard there was a man that had come from God, and he could give them things that they desperately needed. He could amaze them with the things that he could do. And so they came to him looking for immediate relief. For many of them, this wasn't a spiritual matter. This wasn't about eternity. This was about immediate, earthly, temporal relief that they sought from Jesus Christ. Verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So this is one of the first instances where we see Jesus' disciples meeting his physical needs and going and carrying out a task in the name of their master. And he's telling them here to go and get the boat. See, apparently throughout the, throughout the life of these disciples, even though they had left their old life behind to come and follow Jesus, they still had access to boats. And the word here is it's one of a small boat. This isn't a ship. This is a smaller boat that Jesus and maybe a disciple or two could have gotten into. And certainly our mind would immediately move forward to the text that we'll get to, God willing, when we come to Mark 4. When Jesus sits down in the boat and he pushes away from the shore and he preaches, it would have served as a good platform where he could preach but have some space between him and the crowds. It would have also allowed the water to serve as an amplifier for his voice. But in this instance, that's not what we see. We don't, we don't read at all that he got into the boat. We don't read at all anything about teaching. He's just telling his boys that you need to have this boat ready. I would point out to you as well that just as in other texts that we studied in Mark, the crowd is not seen in purely positive terms. A crowd in and of itself is not seen as a great thing. The crowds restricted Jesus' movement. They forced him to leave places at times. They restricted other people's access to Jesus. And now in this morning's text, they're threatening to crush him. So that while Jesus had great concern for the crowds, he loved them, he cared for them, he would care for them, and each one of them was a, 
precious individual crafted in the image of God above? The crowd in and of itself was not a thing to be celebrated. And we as a church, and I as a pastor, we do well to remember that sometimes. That sometimes the thing which most glorifies God and most enables us to carry out our purpose, God's purpose for us as a church is not just masses of people. Sometimes the bigger the crowd, especially when people within that crowd don't truly want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they're just there for his goodies, sometimes all a giant crowd does is gets in the way. So we find Jesus often retreating from the crowd, going alone to be with a smaller group that wants to hear his gospel, that wants to follow. Now again, this doesn't mean that he disregards the others. He loves them all. He receives them all. He's not chasing these crowds away. He's not shaming them. But what he's saying here is that we don't measure success by the size of a crowd. We don't measure success by the number of heads that I could count out there coming to me. But again, he loves them. He doesn't resent them. He doesn't shoo them away. We see, in fact, that he heals them. Verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him. He continued to heal. Not only because he had concern for them and he had love for them, had sympathy for them. He knew the deep need that they had as they came to him but as an evidence that he was who he said he was, and as an evidence that his gospel message was true. And so we read here that they pressed in around him to touch him. And I think at times we underestimate the physical demands, the physical nature of Jesus' ministry. And, and I think it's perhaps magnified today in a time when we are so hesitant to be around the sick and there's all this social distancing and there's this call to everybody to huddle in into their own space. And so I think, I think some of it is highlighted because these people that were coming to Jesus, these were the sick. These were the disease. These were the lame. These were the lepers. These were those with fevers. And they're pressing in all around him. They're coming in to touch him. Now the Greek word, the Greek word for, for pressing around here is epipipto. E-P-I-P-I-P-T-O. Yeah, look, epipipto. It means to fall on. It means to fall on top of somebody. And so what we see here is not just that the people were pressing around, that they were falling. They were so eager to get to Jesus Christ. They were so eager to see him. You see, they had figured out. They had figured out that with just a touch, Jesus Christ could heal. And so they were in such a rush to get him that they're literally falling upon him. He's talking about being crushed here. He knows that they, when they, they, they rush to him, so desperate for what he has to offer in his healing hands, that they're running to him and they're falling upon him. You see, we have this picture in our hearts at times and in our minds of Jesus Christ teaching and these lambs and these little children sitting around on rocks and stumps with their hands neatly folded in their lap and they just listen to their Savior's pretty words and then he dismisses and they all go home. But this was a ruckus crowd. This was a mob. These were people desperate to get to Jesus. They needed what he had. They wanted what he had. I've been watching the, the Michael Jordan documentary. There's a 10-part series. I think it's called Last Dance. It comes on on Sunday nights. And for a kid that grew up in the 80s and 90s, it's just awesome to see this guy that was one of your sporting heroes and to see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And it's not all pretty, of course. But it's just, it's cool to, to see this, these things. And as I was watching last week, uh, Jordan was talking about how exhausted he was from not even being able to leave his hotel room. 
Because anytime he left his hotel room, he was going to be mobbed by people, people that wanted autographs, people that wanted to shake his hand, people that wanted a picture, people that wanted to ask him questions. Just the physical exhaustion that came upon this dude because he couldn't even leave a room. He couldn't leave a hotel room. He couldn't leave his house without people just flooding him. Now, don't compare Jesus to Jordan. But can you imagine those kind of crowds? But add to that the reality that you care about each and every one of those people. Jesus knew and he cared. They came to him with incredible burdens. You know the burden that comes when you love somebody? The, the exhaustion, the weight, as they come and they share with you their hurts, they share with you their needs. It is mentally and emotionally exhausting. Now do that with crowds of thousands. You know and you feel and you care about every single one of them. But in addition to that, we know that there was a physical toll that this healing had on Jesus. You'll remember that, probably you'll remember, um, in Mark 6, again, God willing, we'll get there, and in Mark 6, that there were people in the town of Gennesaret, and they were, they were just laying their sick along the streets because they just hoped that even just, the, even just the tassel, even just the end of Jesus' robe might touch them as he passed by and that they would be healed. And then when we get to Mark 5, we're going to find a woman, a woman that's been bleeding, She's been bleeding for 12 years, and so she comes, and she just reaches out and touches just the corner of Jesus' garment. And we read this, Mark 5, 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, again, in God's due timing, we will come to Mark 5. We'll talk about what that means. But obviously something, power, energy, something left Jesus when this one woman touched him. Now imagine the crowds. You see this crowd coming to you and they were desperate, helpless sheep. And you know in your heart that a lot of them aren't ever going to get it. You know that whatever healing you give to them right now is all they're going to receive and yet you love them and you care about them. So you carry, your bur you carry their burdens. In addition to the physical exhaustion of just trying to move through a sea of people, you've got the exhaustion of them touching you, putting their hands on you, being healed by you. This is what we find in Jesus Christ. Surely he was exhausted from the people falling on him. Yet he doesn't blame them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't chase them away. He continues to meet them as they come to him and meet their needs. Verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. So you see this other phrase here, right? Fall down. The people, the epipipno, they, they fall on Jesus. But the, but the unclean spirits, they prospipto. They fell down before. Whereas the people were falling on Jesus because they wanted these physical things. They wanted this immediate healing. They wanted the things that he could offer them right now. The demons, they fell down before. This is a picture of, of falling down, not necessarily in worship, but falling down before one that is greater than you. Prostrate before them, knowing I've got no ability to stand before you because all it takes is a word from you, Jesus, and I've got to flee. You see, what the demons knew, the disciples didn't yet understand. The Pharisees sure didn't understand. The crowd didn't recognize. As of this moment in Mark's gospel, the only people that recognize that Jesus is the Son of God is God in heaven and demons roaming the earth. Everybody else is lost somewhere in between. And yet they recognized that he is, truly he is the Son of God. And so they fall down before him. Now again, this isn't an act of worship. Scripture tells us that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They were confessing, and their knees were bowing. 
it was a long way from worship. But they recognized right here that they stood before the Holy One of God that was infinitely greater than them, and they had nothing for him. They had no answer for him. They had no power to stand against him. And you would almost expect that he would have welcomed this. You see, this reminds us, this reminds us of the interaction that we see back in, back in Mark 1 when Jesus enters the synagogue and immediately there's a man there with the unclean spirit. And you remember that he fell down before Jesus too. And he says this, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. But again, it goes beyond that. In this morning's text, not only is he saying you're the Holy One of God, he's saying, I know that you are the Son of God. Now, you'll, you'll notice as we walk through Mark's gospel that until we get to the Roman soldier at the death of Jesus Christ, there is no single human that recognizes Jesus as the Son of God until that moment, until the moment of his death. Now, you get into Matthew's gospel, you'll see Peter there confessing him as the Son of God late in that gospel. But in Mark's gospel, you won't find a single human confessing Jesus as the Son of God until that, that Roman soldier there at the moment of his death. And so you would almost expect Jesus to, to welcome this, right? You would expect him to look, around at the, look around at the rest of them and say, what did you say? Tell these people that. Because if you knew who I was, if you knew that I was the Son of God, if you recognized the power, the eternal life that's in me, you'd be asking for a whole lot more than healing. You'd be doing a whole lot more than falling on me. You'd be falling before me. But unlike these demons, you'd be worshiping me. You'd be begging my forgiveness. You'd be seeking access to the Father through me. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what does he tell them? Verse 12, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He tells them to shut up. Tells them to be quiet. And we're not told exactly why he does this. We'll see this routinely throughout the gospel. All the gospels, Jesus is, is telling, these, telling these demons to be quiet. Now, some people believe that it's perhaps because he didn't, he didn't look forward to demons being his press agents. He didn't want them to be the ones out there proclaiming the gospel. They didn't want them to have any, any role in proclaiming this good news. And, and probably there's some truth to that. But if, if we look at how much effort Jesus spend, uh, seems to spend in making sure that everything happens in its proper order, at the appointed time, it seems much more likely that there's a couple of things at play here. Certainly, number one, he knew that recognizing him as the Son of God was certainly going to escalate the calls for his life. And it wasn't time yet for that. But there was something else here. Because you see, the people and the crowds and the Pharisees, they weren't yet ready to see the Son of God. Because all they knew him has at this moment, all they recognized was a man that teached and preached and healed. They did not recognize, teach? That's not a word, is it? Taught. But you can't say taught and preached. That doesn't rhyme. Teached and preached and healed. But they weren't they were ready to recognize him because he had come for so much more than that. He had come to do so much more than just teach. He had come to do more than heal. He had come more than to show his authority over demons and over, over the spirits and over the physical world. He had come to do so much more than that. He had come to fulfill all righteousness and he had come to die. Apart from the cross and the empty tomb, you cannot rightly recognize the Son of God. And so that if he had allowed himself to be fully revealed at this moment as the Son of God, the people would have completely missed the whole reason that he came. They would have understood the Son of God is just to be a man that came to meet their needs and to preach them a gospel that they had never heard before. So many today, that's, that's what they've done. They've attempted to take Jesus Christ and they've attempted to turn him into just a, a moral example. A preacher and a teacher and a healing and a fine moral example for us. As a result of that, they've made him completely useless to anyone. Because in the end, the healing and the preaching 
and the teaching, it would have been meaningless had he not died on that cross and risen from the grave. And so people that today, they, they take and they mold him into something that they're much more comfortable with. They're much more comfortable going to the world and saying, listen, there was this man and he was a great teacher. Or even, there was a man and he was a miraculous healer. But you start talking about the cross and the demands that come upon us to lay down our life as he has laid down his life. And we start talking about dead men being raised from the dead and continuing to live today. That's when things get creepy. But you see, even the apostles did these things, these preaching, these teaching, the healing. Certainly they went out and they proclaimed the gospel with great power and boldness. And, and we see in Acts 5 that the people were coming and they were laying their sick along the roads, hoping that Peter's shadow would just cross over them so that they could be healed. And we're not told necessarily that that worked, but they had that expectation. We get to Acts 19 and we do find out that handkerchiefs or aprons that had even touched Paul were taken to sick people. And as they touched those handkerchiefs, as they touched those aprons, that they were healed completely and that demons fled from their body. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, God had enabled these men, these men that had been called to him to do these same kinds of healings. Jesus had told them, you're going to do greater things than these. You're going to go out and you're going to heal. You're going to preach. You're going to teach. But there's only one cross of Jesus Christ. There's only one empty tomb and there's only one Son of God. And to try to view him, to try to preach him, to try to teach him, to try to see him outside of his miraculous wonderful, glorious, atoning work will end in damnation. To try and, to rem try and remove him from the cross, to try and remove him from the grave, to try to turn him into something else that's nice and fixing a box, box over here, to leave you with nothing. And so what Jesus was doing is saying, you're not ready yet. I'm not done yet. I'm going to show you what this means. I'm going to show you that I really did come to serve and not just serve in washing your feet and not just serve in meeting your needs and not just serve in filling your belly and laying down my life. And I'm going to show you what real power means, not just casting out of demons. You're going to do that too, but in being raised from the dead by my Father to show that I've overcome sin, hell, death, Satan, the grave. Then you will be able to see me. Then you'll be able to rightly see me. And they'd have the opportunity soon enough. Not more than about a year after this point, as Jesus Christ was lifted high in the desert like the bronze serpent there in the wilderness, gladly laying down his life, freely, willingly, lovingly laying down his life for the sins of many, and then being raised again, again to show the victorious power, that the victory was won, there was nothing else to be done, and that in that moment, each man was going to decide for himself, who is this Jesus? What does this cross mean? What does the tomb mean? And is he worth following? Because the demons, they had already decided. They were already locked in in rebellion against God. There was no turning back for them, despite the fact that they were completely aware of who he was. They knew who he was, and they knew the power that was found in him. They knew that ultimately they were going to gain no victory over him, and yet they had determined in pride, they had determined that they were going to capture the throne of heaven. They're going to throw God off of his throne. They themselves wanted to be worshipped as God. And so in this sense of pride, they had, a, they had attempted a coup to capture the kingdom of heaven for themselves, and instead they had been thrown down. And now there was no turning back. There was no mercy. There was no forgiveness. There was nothing else that was going to be offered them. 2 Peter 2, 4 says this, God spared not the angels that sinned. You can give them an opportunity to repent. Give them an opportunity to turn. In that moment, he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. These unclean spirits, what you see in them is the picture of complete and total evil. 
vile, selfish, prideful, disgusting sin, rebellion. Liars since the beginning, murderers, deceivers, trying to turn the hearts of men against God. And we see that spirit playing out in the, in, in the lives of men. We see that very same spirit playing out in the lives of men who they too love the darkness. You remember the words of John, John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Those people that are so in love with their darkness, with the wickedness that is within their heart, they're going to do anything they can to hide their evil deeds, even if that means resisting, coming against, and killing the light. See, the same spirit of these demons playing out in the hearts of men, I see it in myself at plenty of times. I'm like a little boy hiding in the closet with a mouthful of chocolate, hiding from his mommy, lest he be found out. As if I can hide my sins from God. Drive me to despise the light that just emanates from him. I don't want to stand exposed because it's uncomfortable. It's shameful. That's the picture here that we have of these that seek to destroy the light. And then there's the Pharisees and the scribes. Despite their outward appearance of holiness, despite their outward appearance of righteousness, they were no different. In fact, Jesus would say this to them. John 8, 44. You're of your father the devil, and, you will, and your will is to do your father's desires. See, they had murderous hearts, maybe not murderous hands. They kept the lust contained to their hearts, yet it was no, more, no less disgusting, no less despicable before the living God going to lead to no harsher punishment in the end. They were just like their father, the devil. The only difference was that unlike the demons who attempted a military coup to gain the kingdom for themselves, they tried to buy the kingdom with good works. They tried to earn the kingdom with religion. They tried to appease the king by looking pretty on the outside. But the idea of recognizing their own wretchedness or falling down and asking for the merciful God to forgive them for all that they have done, truly repenting, truly coming in faith and confessing, I can't do it, but he can, he'll never be found in Christ. So they try to earn their own righteousness. They try to earn their way into the kingdom. Oh, it's not a military battle. It's an interior battle. It's a battle in their hearts. They despise him just like the demons. That's what makes this even more sad, is they would go out and they would claim the name of God they would claim to serve and to honor and to love the living God while doing, doing the desires of their father, the devil. Even more deceived. In Matthew 23, we get to the stretch of, of Jesus pronouncing these woes upon the, upon the Pharisees and, and scribes and telling them about all that's going to come upon them in the end. But some things that jumped out at me as I looked in here, is he, he calls them hypocrites. He talks about those that practice and never preach. Always calling other men to holiness and yet never really dealing with their own sin. Never really confessing their sin before God and how they love the applause of men. They love the applause of men and they love their own reputation. They love nothing more than to walk down the streets and have people say, there goes a rabbi. For people to shake their hands. People to see their good deeds and to celebrate them. Think, oh, surely this man must be pious. Surely this man must love God. But they're also would assume themselves to be keepers of the, he of the heavenly gates. That they themselves think that they can earn their way into heaven, and yet they're going to stiff arm any that would come to him. Any others that would seek to access the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, through repentance. 
They would come and say, I confess, I'm a man with unclean hands and I need forgiveness. God, would you graciously forgive me? They, no. They count themselves as gatekeepers to heaven. That they keep the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit. He talks about it being like, like straining a gnat out of a cup of tea while drinking down a camel. You remember the speck in the eye versus the log. This idea that, 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 that they get wrapped up on the tiniest of little minutia and they ignore the entire spirit of grace and mercy and love. The call to internal holiness, true holiness that comes from this because they worry about the outside of the cup and not the inside. Remember he called them whitewashed tombs. Everything looks good on the outside but they're rotten and decayed on the inside. Forgetting that God's judgment comes not just against the acts of the hands but against the acts of the heart. More so the acts of the heart. Because it's deceptive, it's deceiving. You're able to hide there in the darkness in your heart. I see myself there too. I'm real good at hiding sin. I'm real good at giving the picture of righteousness and piety. Look, we learn to play that game. We learn to look good on the outside while carrying around filth on the inside, I see myself in these people. Serpents, just like their father. In the place that God had destined for the demons, for the unclean spirits, for the father of the demons, Satan himself. Hell, the fires of hell, that's where they would find themselves too. This place that was designed for the eternal punishment of Satan and his demons. These scribes, these Pharisees that would not turn. They continued to walk a life that looked a whole lot like holiness. In the end, they were going to find themselves in eternal damnation. The fires of hell that would not be quenched. Crying out for mercy and finding none. Not even a drop of water on their tongue in the end because they were so hardened in their hearts. They were so destined to earn their own way. They were so resistant to confessing the sin that was within them and trusting in anyone other than themselves to earn their way into the kingdom of God. And then the crowds. See, the crowds, they, they, weren't, they weren't trying to capture the kingdom for themselves. They weren't trying to earn their way into the kingdom. They couldn't see past their empty bellies. They just wanted the stuff here and now. They knew they had physical needs now, healing now, spiritual oppression now, food they needed now. So as a result of this, they weren't even thinking about the kingdom of God. They were thinking about the here and now. Jesus, what can you give me today? I'll take that today. Give me a temporary fix. I want an earthly king that can meet my earthly needs. And we see that. As Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish, we see that, that they would set about making him into exactly this kind of king, forcing him into this kingly role that they had desired. And sensing this, Jesus goes to the other side of the lake. He flees from him, and much like this morning's text, they press in around him. They fall down upon him. They're coming after him. And Jesus confronts him. He says in John 6, 26, he answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They saw the signs and they thought the signs were everything. They saw the miracles and they thought the miracles were everything. They ate the bread and they thought the bread was everything. And he's saying, you're completely missing the kingdom of God. You're missing that I'm the son of God because now your bellies are full. Tomorrow they're going to be empty again and you're going to want more. But if you would come to me and you would truly eat and you would truly drink, that's where he starts to push them. While Jesus didn't despise the crowds, while he didn't begrudge the crowds, while he continues to meet their needs, eventually he's going to push them hard. Who do you think I am? See, I'm just a giant buffet line? See, I'm just a man you come to to get some needs met? 
See, if you follow after me, I'm just going to keep dropping manna from heaven as my father did in the wilderness. No, listen, you're going to eat my flesh and you're going to drink my blood. You're going to serve me as Lord or you're not going to have me as Savior. You're not going to come to the Father unless you come through me. So that even those that had followed Jesus for some time, their response was, this stuff is hard. Who can believe it? Because he pushed them hard. I know how I see myself in that. Look, I'm not asking Jesus for bread. I'm, I'm relatively physically healthy. I'm not asking for that. I ask for higher things. I come running to him and asking him for forgiveness. Justification. Adoption into the kingdom. See, my buffet line is holy. I'm better than the crowds. They're stupid like dogs. They just want food. But what I've done is I've taken these things, these promises that are found only in Christ, and I've treated them as a means to those instead of everything. Instead of looking to him and recognizing that in him, in him, only in him, will I find any of these things. But the things he says are hard. Who can follow after these things? I, I can't. Not in myself, I can't. Not in my flesh, I can't. Not in my own nature, I can't. And so just like the rich young ruler, they walk away because he's asking too much. You know, the crowd, they would have settled for lesser promises if it would have meant lesser demands. How about you just meet, meet this over here? Like, you ever go into a store when you're a kid and you just had like a handful of change and you just threw it and said, how much candy can I buy with this? Here's how much effort I got for you, Jesus. How much can I buy from this? This is what I'm willing to give you. You go, to the, you, go to the, you go to the arcade now, you spend $100 so your kid can win $3 worth of Laffy Taffy or whatever. That's what we do. This is what I got, Jesus. This is what I got for you. What can I earn in your kingdom with this? That's what we see in those people, and I see it all over my life. They were unwilling, unwilling to honor him as Lord, unwilling to go all in. And in the, in the words of C.S. Lewis, they were too satisfied with mud pies while holiday at sea just passed them by. They completely missed out on the goodness and the grace and the everything of Jesus Christ. And so, just like the demons, just like the Pharisees, they were going to end up in the same place, clamoring for his death. Those that at one moment would be crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in the end would be the ones crying out, crucify him. Because rather than following a king that demands too much, Rather than following a king that doesn't comply with their image, with their idea, he doesn't fight the way they tell him to fight, he doesn't meet their needs the way they tell him, he doesn't rule the way that they desire for him to rule, they'd rather have him dead. Swept up in the fury of the crowd, swayed by public opinion, they too would be calling for his death. And as a result, they too would face eternal judgment, damnation, hell. They all end up in the same place perhaps with different motives, very different-looking lives. And yet in the end, they all end up in the same place. Of course not literally all. There are Pharisees that would come to faith in Jesus Christ like Nicodemus. And most assuredly, there were people in the crowd that came to faith in Jesus Christ and that were saved. But most of them would not. Because the treasures of this world are too sweet. The weight of suffering is too heavy. The applause of men are too too loud. The needs that I have are too many. 
And eternity seems too far off. So they just completely miss it. All of them. We all write around there in different ways. Or perhaps you're like me and you see yourself in all of them. I've tried to do everything I can to miss Jesus. I've tried to do everything I can to mold him into my image. Make him into the Jesus that I desire. It's only by the grace of God that we stand here today and even think these thoughts. And even see these things in ourselves. Because you compare that then with the true disciples. They ate the same fish. They saw the same miracles. They had the same questions. They had the same doubts. They were sinners just like all the rest. And yet when Jesus turns around to them after everybody else walks away, as Jesus turns around to them, John 6, 68 through 69, this is what he says. They say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They didn't learn this on their own. This wasn't the religious elite. This wasn't the group of Mensa folks. They weren't the most holy. They didn't have the highest character. It was by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that he opened their eyes and gave them eyes to see and ears to hear. Whatever faith they have came from God and God alone. We forget that at times. We believe that faith is a thing that we manufacture. No, dear friends. Faith is a gift from God. It doesn't come from works. It's an act of grace from God. God gives you the faith with which you turn around and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That was the difference between these disciples. That as he called them, as he changed them, as eventually he filled them with his Holy Spirit and used them in magnificent ways, that was the difference. They had doubts. There were times when they look around and they go, what kind of man is this? They were the ones that were going to flee as their, as their shepherd was struck. They were the ones that would argue amongst themselves about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom when it came. These guys weren't a whole lot different than all the rest, except for one thing. The faith given to them by God. The ability to truly repent and truly believe. A gift from God. Eyes that truly saw, ears that truly heard. There was no boasting in these men. Where were they going to boast? They didn't wake up smarter one day and realize Jesus was the king. It was all him. It was all his work. So we look at these guys and we recognize it's not about the size of our faith. It's not about the amount of our intellect. It's about the object in him. We, we get so twisted up at times, worried about how weak our faith is. We, we worry about how, how weak our faith is and how easily we're rattled and how easily doubts creep in. But Jesus tells them it's not about the size of your faith. It's not about the amount of your understanding. It's about taking whatever it is that my Father has given you. How much faith you got? The faith my Father gave you. Now you turn around and you direct that back towards me. It's, it's the way that you reach out your hand and receive this gift of me. You will only be found in me by the work of my Father giving you this faith that you can reach out, that you can grasp. I think about as, as, I, was, as I was thinking through these guys, there was a there's a story or an analogy that uh, great pastor Sinclair Ferguson, Scottish pastor, talks about. And I, and I modify it some because he, when somebody says something with a, with a cool Scottish accent, it just sounds so much better. And so I can't tell it the way that he tells it. But he, he paints this picture of these two men and they're standing at the edge of a rocky cliff. 
And next thing they know, the rocks start to slide, they start to fall, and these men are about to go off the edge. Now, one of these men, he's an arborist. He knows everything about trees. And there's a small tree sitting right here next to him. He knows what kind of tree that is. He knows what soil that tree best grows in. He knows how much sunlight that tree needs. He knows that this is a strong tree. He knows that it has deep roots. He knows that the tree can support his weight. As a matter of fact, he can say the name of the tree in Greek. But as he begins to slip, and as he begins to fall, he never bothers to reach out his hand and grab the tree. Maybe he won't die from the fall. Maybe he can grab onto the rocks. Maybe he can whip out his pickaxe and drive it in and save himself. There's another man that's there with him, and he's falling as well. He doesn't know squat about trees. He's never given two minutes thought to this tree. He's an overweight fat guy. That's a little bitty tree. He doesn't really think it's going to hold him. But he looks around and he sees nothing else. No other hope. So in that moment, he reaches out and he grabs that tree. Which one of those man, men is saved? It's not about the size of your faith. It's not about how much you understand. It's not about your wisdom or your understanding or your knowledge. It's not about how new your faith is. It's not about how easily rattled your faith is. It's about the object of your faith. Would you reach out your hand and grab on to Jesus Christ? Trusting that once you do that, you will look backwards and recognize, I didn't grab you, you grabbed me. The faith, the ability, the understanding to reach out my hand and grab, that was all from you in the first place. That's the question. That's what differentiated the This thing is shrinking. That's what differentiated these disciples from everybody else. It was in God's gracious gift and his, in his it, it's a loving act of kindness to these men. He had given them the ability, however weak, however little, however new, however fleeting, he had given them the faith to persevere to the end because they reached out their hand and they grabbed hold of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said, I will grab hold of you and I will never let go. You're going to run, you're going to hide, you're going to sin, you're going to fall. I will never let go. That's where that parable falls apart. The analogy falls apart. The fat man with a little tree, he's got to hold on. Praise God that our salvation does not rest in our ability to hold on. Not only am I not strong enough to hold on, there's plenty of times I don't want to. I just soon burn this thing to the ground. But praise God that Jesus Christ, once we are found in him, he says, I will not let go. No one will snatch you from my Father's hand. No one, no one, no one will take you from my hand. Not you, not the world, not your sin, not your doubts. Not your past, not Satan himself. And so as we come to this place in Mark's gospel, as we, as we hit pause for a moment, and we see the characters taking form, as we see the groups forming up, as we see these people in their interactions with Jesus Christ, I feel like it's a healthy, healthy spot, it's a healthy moment for us to hit pause and ask, have we truly acted in faith? And for those of us, those of us that have, You've repented, you have trusted, you're following after Jesus Christ. Would you then stop letting the enemy convince you otherwise? That you have failed, that you have lost his favor, that you have fallen from grace. Dear friends, that is not the way this works. Saving faith saves to the end. And if you find yourself being one that is deceived, if you find that you are still holding on 
to these other ways of salvation. Either because you so love the darkness that you want to try to figure out another way. You want to figure out an end around. An end around. If I can just swing widely enough around Jesus, his light won't eliminate my darkness. Or perhaps you've invested too much in this religious system in your own name. And to have to come through the light, have to come to Jesus Christ, would be to expose that you don't have it all figured out and you're a mess just like everybody else. Or perhaps you've tried to reach around behind Jesus' back and just grab onto his gifts, never truly embracing him, never truly loving him, never wanting him. Then today's the day. Today's the day. Scripture tells us whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The ability to truly call on the name of the Lord is a gift from him. How do I know if I got the gift? Call on his name! What do you mean? How do I know I can walk? I'm walking! Call on the name and be saved. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that we are not left here try and earn anything in your kingdom that in your grace all grace it is all grace father god i'm reminded as i stand here right now it is not our faith which saves us it is through faith that you save us but it is in jesus christ alone that we are saved that we are held that we will someday be glorified. So that, Father, in those times of doubt, in those times of fear, in those times of struggle, we don't fix our eyes on faith. We don't fix our eyes on our own faith or the faith of others. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and him alone. So, Father, help us to do that now. Father, we also know that you have given us glorious gifts Yes, which will strengthen our faith. By the work of your Holy Spirit, when we come into contact with your word, it's a gift from you to bolster our faith. And we spend time alone in prayer with you to strengthen our faith. And when we come to, your, come to the Lord's table and we take the bread and we take the juice, that, that in him, through you, as an act of grace, you strengthen our faith. And that, Father, as we gather together like this as a body and we sing songs of praise, that you will use this time. Father, you don't need our songs of praise. You're worthy. But you don't need them. You're not lacking without them. Oh, but, Father, you would strengthen our faith as we sing songs of praise to you. So help us to do that now. Help us to worship now in spirit and in truth. For it's in the name of your precious Son we pray. Amen.